agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. This is the first post-election episode of our Election 2020 series, and at this point, we're recording this late Thursday morning, we still don't know who will be the next president of the United States. Things maybe look a little bit more promising for Joe Biden than they do for Donald Trump, but there's plenty of counting still to come and certainly plenty of lawsuits. But while there is an awful lot of uncertainty around this election, more than any election since 2000, there are some things that we do know. First off, it's clear that Joe Biden will win the popular vote, and it won't even be particularly close. As things stand right now, Biden's up by right around 3.7 million in the popular vote, and that margin's almost certain to widen over time. What this means is that Democrats have now won the popular vote in seven of the last eight elections, something no party has done before in U.S. history. It's also the fourth consecutive popular vote victory for Democrats. And the last time that happened for any party was the Democrats from 1932 through 1948. So let's start there. What do you make of this pretty significant divergence between the popular vote and the electoral vote? Doc? Well, I guess for me, it's the population size of the, of the coasts more than anything else. I mean, you've got a bazillion people packed into California. Uh, not so much Washington and Oregon, but California and there and New York. And uh, having lived on the East Coast for a while and living shoulder to shoulder, uh, literally with those folks, uh, there's just a ton more people up there and they are a ton more liberal than those of us that are spread out in the Midwest, in the, in the, uh, in the West. So I think that's why it happens. Okay. Olivia. Hi, I hate the electoral college. You all know this already, but I'm going to say it again. Um, land. So I saw this on like social media yesterday and it, and it said, basically it showed, um, the votes, you know, by people and uh, versus like the electoral votes. And it said like, land doesn't vote, people do. Um, and I've heard the argument in favor of the electoral college a million times. And like, I know what the argument is. But again, um, the 3 million plus, depending on how many more votes we get for Joe Biden, um, people who voted for Biden, the same as the 2.9 more million more people who voted for Hillary Clinton, are equally affected by federal policy and will be equally affected by Trump's policies if he ends up winning the electoral vote, but not the popular vote, um, as everyone else who voted, whether you're in a small state or a densely populated state, you are equally impacted by federal policy. So for me, your vote should matter. And um, if Biden wins by three million plus votes, um, but loses the electoral vote, then again, I'm saying again, those three million plus people are disenfranchised and they're going to be impacted by Trump's policy. Um, and we're it's minority rule at that point, because less people voted for the person who is ultimately going to be the president if Trump wins, um, which is what we've seen every other time the popular vote has uh, not not elected the winner of the Electoral College. So what do we say to these, assuming, let's, let's assume that Donald Trump does manage to, to hold on and, and win this election, and certainly it's possible. What do you say to those three, four, five, six, I've seen estimates as high as maybe 7 million people plus uh, who've you know, voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, aside from, I don't know, move to Alabama, Georgia and North Carolina. Is there a what do you tell people in that position, do you think? Faith. Kind of just what you said, there's not a lot you can tell people like it's kind of unfortunate that like their vote 
isn't making that kind of an impact. But while the Electoral College is still in play, like there really is nothing that you can kind of do about it at this point. Noah. I think by any chance, the one thing they can do is my um, maybe call for change, like actually ask for us to reconsider how we play out the Electoral College. Maybe again, going to that partial, like we split the vote like 50-50 if that's what happens by states or something like that. I mean, I think it'll just be if this happens again, I think we're going to see a bigger push by, I think, I mean, again, if it's that 7 million people, that's 7 million people that their votes didn't really count because it went the other way than then they voted. So I think it's going to be a bigger push this time around on like, we need to change this. Now, another thing we do know is that pre-election polls actually seem to be, well, not actually, seem to be, have been pretty badly wrong. And it's important to point out, not just randomly so. In almost every case, polls indicated that Joe Biden was doing better, sometimes considerably better than it looks like he'll end up doing. On our last episode, you might remember that I mentioned I'd put together an electoral college map that assumed that every state poll average should be five points more in favor of Trump than it actually is. And I came up with Biden just barely winning the election, ending up with like 296 electoral votes. And now, based on what we know, it's entirely possible that Biden wins by an even narrower margin with just that minimum of 270 electoral votes or even that President Trump manages a narrow victory. And this underestimation of Republican support doesn't look to have been just at the presidential level. There are a bunch of races that pollsters thought would be toss-ups that weren't really even all that close. For instance, Lindsey Graham beat Jamie Harrison in South Carolina by double digits when a lot of folks were calling this a toss-up. And the pre-election predictions of Democrats gaining seats in the House, picking up 51, 52, maybe even a 53-seat majority in the Senate, and also flipping control in multiple state governments, well, that just hasn't come to pass. So what happened with the polls, do you think? Alan? I think there's a lot of things you can contribute it to. I think we saw this in the midterms, too, where it's like, oh, there's going to be this Democratic wave, and they're going to retake the House and the Senate, and they gained a few seats in the House and didn't retake the Senate. This time around, they're like, oh, there's going to be this massive Democratic wave, and they're going to take the, they're going to hold the House, they're going to get the Senate, and they're going to win the presidency, and then they're likely not going to win the Senate. They lost seats in the House, and they might barely get the presidency. So I think a lot of this has to do with the narrative the media spins up, and I also think a lot of it has to do with how um, Trump supporters, or perhaps Republicans in general, respond to polls. I worked, um, I don't think I can discuss the specifics, but I worked for the government for a bit there, and I was like going house to house and um, collecting information for stuff. And um, unsurprisingly, you know, Republicans are more hostile to the government than other people and are less likely to answer. And I just think Republicans don't answer polls in the levels Democrats do. Okay. Doc? I think one thing that really messed up a lot of things, especially in the presidential, was uh, the uh, libertarian candidate. What's her name? Joe mm-hmm. Jorgensen? Yep. Jorgensen? Mm-hmm. I mean, if it wasn't for her, I mean, if Trump had got in those votes, he would be well ahead of Biden in a lot of states. And I don't think the pollsters took her into consideration at all. I mean, she was kind of a non-entity in the way they did things. And I think she has really affected the way this this thing has really uh, turned out overall. And I should point out that in, in most of the larger uh, in the larger national polls and the better run state polls that that the libertarian candidate was is given as an option to people. But but certainly I think that if there's a uh, assumption that a lot of votes that go to libertarians would likely or be more likely to go to a Republican than to a Democrat. And maybe for especially for for people in Kentucky, thinking that that is what perhaps helped to elect a Democratic governor in in Kentucky over over Republican Matt Bevin not that long ago. Uh, Olivia. 
I also just wonder, and I know we've talked about this um, in like previous episodes, but I, I remember saying like in my paper, one of the things that made me feel uneasy about the polls is just that like, I know from my personal experience and from like my friends and my classmates, um, like young people like me who are really politically involved and like always posting about politics on Facebook, for example, we also get kind of inundated with polls like on social media, um, especially because of like the cookies and everything, um, knowing that we're like into politics and being able to access us easily. Um, And we know that a lot of Trump's base is from more rural areas and is uh, likely to be non-college educated white men um, and especially in older age ranges. So I just wonder if, you know, I know the polls like pollsters said that they were trying to compensate for those, you know, people being maybe less accessible by polling um, and also to weight their, their poll responses. But I still just, I feel like they were, um, underpolled and underweighted and, and underestimated because, um, like we said before, we've had such a huge turnout of young people from 18 to 29 years old um, who tend to be more democratic. But I just I wonder if too much weight from the pollsters was placed on like my age range um, and us, you know, expecting to vote for Joe Biden and um, just, you know, people in older ranges and from, you know, more rural areas, less less active on social media and without college education were kind of um, underestimated and underaccounted for. Sure. And there are certainly a lot of, there had been a lot of polls out there and we probably need to make a distinction between uh, social media and those sort of polls, which as Olivia pointed out, might be far more likely to draw in a non-representative group, though what major polling organizations will tell you is that they use uh, random digit dialing and other methods that should theoretically at least give everyone an equal chance of being called for. But that brings back to something that I think Doc and, and previous episodes and Alan have suggested is that perhaps Republicans are much less likely to answer those questions. And then going back to what Olivia said, that maybe that sufficient weighting wasn't made to compensate for that sort of thing. There was something, Alan, that that, that you mentioned about 2018. And I want to sort of point out that actually one thing that gave a lot of pollsters what seems to be a false sense of confidence is they got it pretty close to right in 2018. The polls were really pretty good, and it sort of seemed like, well, they learned their lesson from 2016, made the correct adjustments, and 2018 turned out more or less like was expected to. But then in 2020, it seems like it may be even worse than 2016. And that reminded me, Alan, actually, of something that you mentioned last week, and that's the enthusiasm gap. Because, of course, one big difference between 2018 and 2020 is that in 2018, Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot, whereas in 2016 and 2020, he is. So I'm wondering what you all think about that enthusiasm gap. I know there are a lot of Biden voters. I think most of you are probably were Biden voters, but what do you think about that idea that Biden voters or potential Biden voters just weren't as jazzed about Joe Biden as a lot of Trump supporters were about him? Faith. Yeah, I definitely think there is a big enthusiasm gap, especially um, I think one of the polls said like 66 percent of um, Biden voters. I mean, it was 66 percent of Trump voters are enthusiastically supportive of Trump compared to 40 percent of Biden. Also, like if I look like my home state is Ohio where I live is a very um, rural area. You drive through my town, you see about 90% Trump supporters and about 10% of Biden supporters. But even I was driving through a major city like Columbus um, before school started. And even in the suburbs there, there was tons and tons of Trump signs out there. Um, Also too, I think a big thing that really drove Trump to the end is still like days before the election, he's out here holding big rallies and things like that. Everyone really, again, a lot of Trump supporters are willing to go out there knowing the risk of COVID to go to a Trump rally where I don't think as many people are going to go break their neck to go to a Biden rally. And also, too, is Biden is a guy who's been around in politics for 40 years. He's an old white guy. He's not a young, energetic candidate, or he's not like a Bernie Sanders who's getting young people really riled up. So I think that there is that gap to be considered. Okay, Doc. Uh, a lot of my friends, uh, and I was talking about this 
with a guy I used to work for just the other day who's probably my age. And we were talking about Biden. And basically, the conversation was, we feel sorry for the man. Uh, He is, he needs help. He should not be allowed to roam around and speak by himself. I mean, when my when my wife was ill and she was in long-term care and I spent a lot of time with her, there were people in long-term care who had that same look on their face that Biden has on his, which is a blank, I don't know what's going on kind of look. And I feel sorry for the man. I'm telling you the truth. He does not want to be president. He can't handle the job. I was thinking just this morning that God help us if he wins and has to give the inaugural address. I mean, I mean, it, he, just, he, he just doesn't have it anymore. He really doesn't. And that certainly is something that we've been hearing a lot, especially on right of center media, a, a lot of focus, uh, questioning of of Joe Biden's uh, cognitive abilities and uh, his the possibility that he would just simply be an empty suit and defer to the uh, what's sometimes called the radical left. And one can certainly understand why that would be a way that uh, those on the right would frame that, although a lot on the left would certainly disagree with that framing. Noah. Um, so I wouldn't say that Biden's not fully cognitive. I think a really great example was actually watching him speak at the debates. A lot of times, I mean, like, obviously he didn't, I mean, like, I miss speak all the time too. And I mean, like everybody does it. So I wasn't upset about that or worried about that. I think it was really nice to just see him like speak and like see that he isn't just like some person that's just going to be here for like oh he's going to win the election and just give it to Kamala Harris I think he truly is trying to run for the country and try to do things I mean like he has plans I mean he said it multiple times throughout the debate like I'm like I'm the Democratic Party which he really is he's the head of the Democratic Party right now and I mean so like watch it i mean like no i mean like as doc was saying he was like doc was saying like he's not cognitive and stuff like that he's not able to form sentences and stuff like that but i mean like the man really is i mean like i've watched a couple of his other speeches besides the things that debates and i mean like the man has good points he actually truly cares i think his inaugural speech is actually potentially the best opportunity for him to show how much he actually is trying to work for our country i mean like if by any chance joe biden does win I think his inaugural speech will be one of the best ones we potentially had because he's going to actually, I think if he does win, I think he is going to be our best opportunity to start reconnecting our country instead of dividing it like Trump does. So I think this is potentially the best opportunity for Joe to show like what he can do. Okay. Uh, Alan. Um, Taking it back to the enthusiasm gap argument. um, Yeah, I do think there is an enthusiasm gap between Biden and Trump, and I do think that made a difference. I think one of the difficulties is when we're taking politics into consideration as a science, because it is a science in a sense, but it's also a social science, is a lot of politics is theater. And if you're a good performer, you're going to start doing better. It doesn't matter like what you say. is If you're a good performer, if you're putting on a good show, people are going to look your way and they're going to be interested. And Trump is an excellent performer, and Biden is, well, he's less of a performer than he used to be i feel like and i think you can make the same argument for hillary clinton and i mean even historically democrats do better when they have um a a charismatic quote-unquote candidate like kennedy or obama as opposed to a clinton or a biden i think charisma plays a huge role in politics and maybe it's just something we haven't accounted for as political scientists yet and I think a, a lot of folks on the left point to Barack Obama, as you were saying, as the sort of candidate who really uh, got that sort of real enthusiasm for people in a way that Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden really doesn't seem to have followed up on. Olivia. So I I'm not I'm not agreeing with this. I I have watched, like Noah said, I've watched Biden speak 
many times. And I think he's been really, really good at responding to some of the attacks that Trump has thrown. Um, and he's made some really, really good arguments and made some really good cases for himself. Um, notably when, um, as I've mentioned before, he said, yes, we went law and order, but on the condition of justice. And then when he said, um, unlike Trump and unlike, you know, uh, unlike the rhetoric from the Trump administration, I'm not trying to just cater to people who support me. I want to um, be an American president, not a Democratic president. He's made some really strong cases. Um, and I don't think he sounds senile. I think, I, you know, I've never thought that of him. However, I also taking it back to the um, the enthusiasm um, from supporters, I don't think that even for people who do think that he's not really cognitively there and stable, um, I don't think that's really where the enthusiasm gap is coming from. Because honestly, and I know I'm only I'm only 23, so, um, but I don't remember um, a time, at least in my lifetime, that we've seen anything like this with um, the way that Trump's base rallies around him and like that everywhere you look, um, you know, from Kentucky to Ohio, where I spend most of my time, I'm seeing um, trucks with Trump flags flying off the back of them everywhere and um, huge yard signs, not just small ones, like huge yard signs. And every single time I go to the store, I see at least one person with like a MAGA hat or a Trump shirt or something on. And where I work, I'm constantly seeing it. Um, and so I, I just... I don't think this is really like normal that we've seen this with other candidates. And I think it's because um, Trump has kind of pushed this rhetoric of like that he's serving the underdog and he's like kind of used this fear mongering of like, well, everyone wants to hate on like white men without a college education and everyone wants to call white men who, you know, are gun toting conservatives. Everyone wants to like pick on you and call you racist and try to take away your rights. And he's kind of rallied those people like and kind of made them feel like they're the underdog that he's like siding with and that he empathizes with. And like, I just think that that like validation for those people and like him kind of making them feel like everyone's out against them except for him and like his administration is, um, really like rallying them in a way and kind of creating this devoted, like very loyal base that we haven't seen um, at least in my lifetime. But I don't know that my parents have said that they've never seen this kind of like, you know, crazy devotion to a candidate before. So um, I think that's where the major enthusiasm gap comes from is that, you know, Trump is an outlier, um, not just between Democrats and Republicans or Biden and Trump. He's just an outlier in general. Doc. Uh, just one last thing on this. I mean, Biden seems to me for the Democratic Party like an accident. Uh, he was the one they had to take. I don't think he ever won the Iowa primary. I still think he came in third. And Obama wouldn't even endorse him until the very end. I mean, if you can't get the guy who was president when you were vice president to endorse you enthusiastically, which he certainly did not. Uh, I can't under, you know, I can understand why your base isn't enthusiastic. Let's move on and talk about how the campaigns have responded to this point. What's your take on how both the Obama and, or sorry, Obama, <laughs> Obama on the mind, how both the Trump and the Biden campaigns, as well as the candidates themselves, have responded to this very uncertain period where patience was probably important, but certainly not something that anyone seems to be particularly good at. Well, what, what are your thoughts on that? Let's start with uh, Noah, you. So um, I, I found it really interesting to watch what Trump has been saying um, recently within an hour of since I've checked my Twitter account. Um, he has tweeted, stop counting votes, which I mean, I think that, I mean, like, obviously, like, I think the reason he just wants to stop counting votes is out of his fear for losing. But I think the most important thing is that we really should. I, I think he's just worried that this is by any chance he's not going to win. I think that we obviously we need to count all the votes. That's the most important thing. I mean, like, we really are a democracy here. And I think the most important thing is that we do count all the votes and we make sure to have accurate results. And I mean, I remember, I think it was yesterday, I got a text message from the Biden campaign saying, like, donate $20 now to help us start fighting our legal fights that are already going to happen. And I mean, like, I just think this is crazy that it's like, we're already going to have to start 
fighting potentially again within the court system just to make sure everybody's vote is counted. I should point out that uh, having the president say stop counting votes is at least on one level seems to be an odd message, given that with the current vote count as it has been reported, then he would actually not be the next president of the United States, though perhaps that's part of a larger strategy to make an argument if when all the votes are counted, he actually uh, does not end up on the winning side of that. Uh, Alan. Yeah, so the coming out at 2 a.m. in the morning and saying stop counting the votes. It's fraud. It's not a good look. But um, everybody's kind of responding exactly. Like, everybody's stressed out, but I feel like everybody's responding exactly how we anticipated they would respond months ago. There was the Republicans pulled ahead because of in-person voting, then Democrats started to gain because of mail-in voting, and now we're in this weird place where everybody's like, well, here come the lawsuits, just like we, I think we even said at the very beginning of this podcast that there was probably going to be lawsuits over this election, and here we are. Now everybody's saying they're going to lawyer up. Faith. Yeah, just as Alan said, everyone's about to lawyer up, which is just an interesting thought. Um, I know, like, Eric Trump and Rudy Giuliani have specifically spoken out against Pennsylvania. Eric Trump said, like, they're trying to cheat us out of it, and Trump's even kind of gone out against Michigan saying that um, the whole process of counting ballots, um, saying they didn't have enough access, like full access. And the, actually, the Michigan Secretary of State came out um, really condemning that allegation, saying that there was um, that the information is all out there. People can go see if they want and that the process has been very transparent. But as Alan said, like, it's probably about to get drugged through the courts. So we'll see how that goes. Olivia. Also, what I think, so I've been following this like every minute of the day since, since Tuesday night, like it's on the, it's on my TV every minute of every day. And, um, I've, you know, been seeing the protests in places like Phoenix and everything, but what is like the most disturbing to me is that some of these states who actually asked for, um, for clearance to start counting, um, massive amounts of early votes and of, um, mail-in ballots early, um, because they knew that this situation was going to unfold, were denied that ability. Um, so, I mean, we've known since before the election and like the Trump administration has known that it was going, there was going to be a delay. Um, and you know, what I thought was also interesting is that, um, a lot of the uh, journalists yesterday were talking about how, like, while Rudy Giuliani was calling everything fraudulent and um, illegal and saying that, you know, the people's votes are being disenfranchised because they're trying to steal the election. And I've gotten 50 emails from the Trump campaign about how the election's being stolen and everything. Um, but Trump didn't speak yesterday. And that was something that a lot of um, news anchors were talking about is that he didn't speak because he's kind of in this position where if he comes out and says, like, halt all counting, well, he wants them to keep counting in places like Nevada and Arizona. Um, so how do you say stop counting or keep counting in Nevada and Arizona where I'm behind, but I might catch up, um, but halt voting in places where I'm ahead, but Biden might catch up? Like, And then the fact that his tweets, like almost every tweet that he's made between yesterday and Tuesday and I guess this morning are being censored for like misinformation and for um, for misleading information about how, you know, this election is fraudulent and how like votes have never been counted after the day of the election. And I don't know. It's just it's a mess. I don't really even know what I'm like trying to get at. Other than that, it's a mess. And I know that we expected this, but it's just I don't know, like to predict it happening and then actually see it happening is still just like so shocking. Absolutely. Well, speaking of shocks, what has surprised you the most about what's happened so far? Faith. Um, one thing for me that I just kind of thought was like interesting and a little bit surprising was actually what happened a little bit in the Senate, a Senate race where Mark Kelly actually um, unseated Republican incumbent uh, Martha McSally flipping the like the long term uh, GOP seat to blue, which is actually giving Arizona the first pair of Democratic senators since the 1950s. I just thought that that was a really interesting fact, especially looking at how close things are in Arizona just was interesting to me. And and some for a long time, Democrats have been saying that in states like Arizona, that demographics are gradually, uh, in their view, helping them out, certainly. And some might point to that race as an example of that. Alan. Yeah, Arizona was a bit. I mean, 
they've been saying it for a while, but it's always still surprising when it happens. Another thing that really caught me off guard, but I still think it's really interesting and really kind of cool is there's still cross-party voting, apparently, because in Maine, Biden won Maine and Susan Collins, the Republican who's supposedly down, she won re-election. Whereas in North Carolina, at least right now, it appears that Trump's leading, well, Roy Cooper, their Democratic governor, won re-election. So people are still splitting their tickets, which I think is really interesting. Doc? Yeah, it's interesting when you talked about Arizona, I mean, flipping over. Uh, this is something that, uh, this is kind of apocryphal, I think, but the people in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, um, they have some big billboards out there which read, if you want to move here from California, don't bring your liberal ideas along with you. And I think that may be What's changing the balance out there is people are trying to get away from California, you know, uh, just because of the way California is. And they're moving into the states that are uh, close to California. I think one other guy that might have gotten himself into trouble is the attorney general in uh, Pennsylvania, who before even Election Day, came out and said, uh, Biden wins, Trump loses, uh, you know, it's all over and done. Uh, You know, I'm not into lawyers, but man, I think he put his foot in his mouth and opened himself up for all kinds of lawsuits. If you're, uh, you know, if you're the attorney general and, and calling your state or one of the candidates and just saying it's all over. And I, I won't comment on that because I'm not I'm not familiar with the context in which he which he said that, certainly. But uh, let's see. I see Noah, you have your hand up. So I really, really say it was shocking, but I think it was more exciting for me was the fifth member of the squad got elected in Missouri. And that was really exciting because she did not win the election back in 2018. She didn't even get past the primaries. Her name is Cori Bush. And she um, I was really excited to see that she got in. So now we have another fifth member of that squad with AOC and Ilhar Omar and everybody else. And one thing I should point out that at least again we don't have full results yet but one thing and, and many of you well many many of you certainly who are listening to me right now as part of this conversation know that when i talk about politics and elections one of the first rules is that incumbents win and incumbents win at extraordinarily high rates and maybe this shouldn't be surprising to people because it's so common but right now if you take a, li- a look at the list of incumbents who have lost out of, I think it's 468 races for Congress and plus a presidential race so far, 10 incumbents have lost. So again, this maybe isn't so surprising or maybe a surprise to a lot of people, but almost every incumbent who's won for re-election has won re-election, as it generally is. And we'll see if that holds for the president. All right, uh, moving on. What do you expect to happen between now and January 20th? And and I don't want your worst case scenario like uh, riding in the streets and National Guard troops and zombies and God knows what else. Uh, we, we get enough of that everywhere else. But what is your best sense, your non-catastrophic expectation of how things go between now and January 20th when somebody is going to be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. Olivia. So I really everything is, I mean, there's the slim possibility that Biden could take Georgia um, and then he wouldn't necessarily need Arizona if uh, if Arizona ends up because I I was just watching yesterday that um, the outstanding votes that are coming in in Arizona are leaning very much toward Trump. So there is definitely that possibility that Trump will take back Arizona. Um, And we really just don't know. Um, I have no idea at this point who I think is going to win. I think, again, my like protective mechanism is telling me like just accept that Trump's going to win. But I really don't know. But I do think that um, if Biden wins, absolutely, we're going to see lawsuits. And I think Trump, you know, planned for this. And we all know that that's why he was, you know, so intent on 
packing the Supreme Court and getting that last uh, Supreme Court confirmation in um, so that when it goes to the Supreme Court. And I also was um, listening to the news yesterday about how that kind of just, you know, he's just invalidating the Supreme Court in so many ways and, you know, kind of giving this narrative to the public that like the Supreme Court rules based on like obligation and favor. But aside from that, um, what I do wonder is that if Trump wins, um, you know, if he takes Arizona and keeps all the states that he has right now, or even if he takes Nevada and keeps the states that he has right now that are leaning in his favor, um, I wonder what the like lawsuits and the legality of that will be. Like, I wonder if he will drop it um, or if he'll still, you know, continue trying to sue these states or, you know, have like a vendetta against the states that continued counting. Um, I'm really curious you know, I hope I hope to God that he doesn't win. But if he does, I'm curious to see if he'll just kind of drop these these allegations he's making in these uh, lawsuits or if he'll um, continue with them. Any other thoughts on how you expect things to go or is everyone just sort of in such a state of uncertainty that you have no idea at that point? Yeah, Doc. No, I was really surprised about the way they're trying to flip Arizona back toward Trump. And I was just calculating the chances for for Trump to win. And I mean, theoretically, theoretically, uh, if he pulls, you know, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Nevada, Alaska, he's got it. Uh, then that Arizona thing. But I mean, I think. <laughs> I think the lawsuits are feeding upon themselves. I think lawyers are going to be suing lawyers. Uh, just they have something to do. But this is uh, this is just uh, this is a real horse race, and I'm uh, I'm kind of really excited about this. To tell you the truth, because I looked at my paper about the pollsters and everything. And my prediction was Trump was going to win with 271 electoral votes. And the way my calculations come out, if he pulls these things out of the fire, he's going to have 274. And that's not counting Arizona, whichever way that goes. So Olivia and I should not have swords in our hands and be in the same room, I don't think. Maybe a good idea, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I don't think I'm that bad. Well, that, that, that's good. So re regardless of who ends up winning this presidential election, I think there are at least potential lessons for both parties to take away from it. So let's start with the Democratic Party. What, if any, lessons do you think Democrats should take away from this election? Faith. I think a big thing that Democrats are going to take away from this election is just well, really not even just the Democrats, but like the country as a whole is learning about how big of an impact for future elections the Latino vote is going to have, um, especially looking at states like um, Texas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, how um, both sides are really going to need to focus on like capturing these voters, especially undecided, seeing especially too is how that Latino vote made that big of a difference in Miami. Um, just seeing again too is the fact that Texas was like as close of a race as it was in Georgia. It's just looking at how that growing demographic is going to change things. What other lessons do you think Democrats might be able to take away from this, Alan? That they got to learn how to close that enthusiasm gap. They had, unlike usual where Republicans usually raise more money in the, the elections, at least recently, Democrats in a lot of races raised more money than Republicans in a lot of these races, and they still lost by pretty significant margins. And and that's a, that's a good point. I mean, especially I talked about the uh, Harrison-Graham race, and, and Harrison well outraised Graham, but of course, raising money and spending money is one thing, but actually getting people to go out and go to the polls for you is something entirely different. Uh, what about the Republicans? What, if any, lessons do you think Republicans might take away from this election? Noah. 
Um, I think one thing, I think it was kind of, um, Faith who was kind of touching on it earlier, is that these key um, states that used to be like really central to Republicans to winning the election are now becoming more at play. So I think they're going to have to start driving their bases there more. So it's like they might, you might actually start seeing now a Republican campaigning in Texas to make sure they get that win down there. It's like, because normally that's not a place they would have to campaign. So it's like, I think they're going to have to start thinking about how can we keep getting these votes, but making sure that they're not only going to these places because they also have to worry about all the other major swing states too. Doc? I think both parties need to tamp down this multiculturalism and treat everybody as everybody and try not to, to point at a group and say, we're going to get the Latino group or we're going to get uh, uh, black people or uh, what is it up in Minnesota? All the, uh, the, um, that group that's up there. I mean, it, it's, it's starting to really bother me that They've got all these pockets of nationalism when it really is the United States and people have to meld it together, just like the little uh, slogan on the uh, on the currency, the e pluribus unum thing. I mean, uh, you can't keep going after these groups as individual groups. It's just... It causes more trouble, I think, than uh, than it gives you value. And, and, and that is certainly a debate that, that we've been hearing a lot about, maybe more particularly in the Democratic Party, which sort of pits what you might call the kind of broad-based, more traditional FDR-style economic populism against what some people would call uh, identity politics. But there's some of that on the right as well. Olivia. Um, yeah, I agree with that because what we've seen, well, okay, Biden has done very well in places where he, where, um, black voters were critical to him. Um, they really have proved to support him and help him in a lot of cases, but, um, he really, I mean, like underestimated support from, and I think he knew, um, that with his history with Obama and Obama, like having the nickname deporter in chief or whatever it was, um, that he didn't have really you know, necessarily as strong of support as um, as he would have liked to from uh, Latino and Latino voter voters. Um, but I mean, we, we've seen that that has kind of broken him in, in certain states um, is Latino voters voting for Trump. Um, but also what I would say from um, the Republican side of what they can learn from this, and this kind of scares me, but um, we've seen this like we've talked about earlier today um we've seen this like diehard loyalty for trump um who is kind of one of the most like extreme and unique and divisive and polarizing um presidents that that this country has had and um it's like there's no in between you either like you either love trump and and like would die for him or you absolutely just detest trump um and what kind of scares me is that because this has been successful for the republican party and um achieving loyalty and really nothing trump does is turning away his loyal base um i wonder if you know this kind of tactic of being really, really extreme and polarizing when in choosing a candidate um, will stick for them because of the success that they've seen with Trump. Um, but from the Democratic stance, one thing that I feel like has faulted them in 2016 and again now is um, the fact that the media, and I know that, you know, the Democratic Party does not like control the media, but, um, you know, I've been seeing for months now that Biden is so far ahead of Trump um, and people were so confident that like Biden was, you know, 10 points ahead of Trump and that there's no way that Trump's going to catch up. And um, while Biden kept pushing this narrative of like, that doesn't mean you need to, you should be complacent. You still need to go out and vote. I just wonder how many people felt really comfortable in that and who maybe liked voted Biden, but didn't, you know, didn't feel like going through the hassle of getting an absentee ballot and mailing it or who didn't, you know, feel like going to the polls in the middle of a pandemic because they felt like Biden had it secured. Um, so I just, I don't know. I wish that the media wouldn't, I guess, 
give this narrative that that Biden had it in the bag because I feel like that maybe um, that maybe hurt him a little bit among Biden supporters because obviously we know now that he didn't and it's very very close and there's a very good chance that he might not win. Which which would be sort of an irony given that the general the often heard claim that the media the mainstream media is bias toward the left, that they could actually hurt potentially Joe Biden's chances there. And let's talk a little bit about the media, maybe to close out. What, how would you rate, I guess, the media's coverage of things to this point? And what lessons would you hope, even if you don't think they will, would you hope in a more idealized world that the media would learn from covering this election and predicting this election and so forth that would lead to maybe a better media uh, environment in the future? What do you think? Doc. Well, I think the mainstream media is nothing more than a extension of the Democratic Party. Uh, the only network that does not promote the Democrats is Fox News. Uh, and I think the social media, again, is very, very stilted to the left. Uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, the whole, the whole nine yards. They they all promote uh, the democratic philosophy and the candidates. Uh, it's it's just. For me, it's really wrong. They they are not not non biased at all. They are totally biased toward the left. Okay, Olivia. So here's my problem with and and I am very much not a person who's like fake news. I hate the media because I watch the news every day, all the time, um, and I generally trust the stations that I watch and the the sources that I read online and everything because um, I you know I believe that they're reputable sources. But um, what I have noticed, the more politically involved I've gotten, is that. Um, and I, I know it's because Trump is just like constantly giving us something negative to talk about. He's either making a, a statement and tripping over himself and then trying to say that that's not how he meant it or um, that he he didn't say that or whatever the next day or, um, you know, pushing some kind of policy that is, you know, that is very against what the Democrats want or the Democrats want and are pushing for. But um, what I have not seen on like CNN, MSNBC um, you know, any of the sources that that I tend to to read or to watch is um, kind of this rallying around Biden, which we see on Fox News um, that they really do promote a lot about Donald Trump. And it's kind of centered around like everyone hates Donald Trump, but he's great. And here's why um, on kind of the left leaning uh, platforms. It's more so like just bash Trump 24 seven. And we don't see as much of like what Biden is doing well. Um, and I guarantee you that if I asked pretty much anybody in my family or any of my friends who voted for Biden um, what they liked about Biden's policies or which policies they agree with, um, all they would be able to tell me is what they hated about Trump. And I get that that's perfectly valid reason to vote for Biden if you just cannot imagine another four years of Trump. Um, but I think we, you know, if we're trying to close that enthusiasm gap, like Alan said, um, we need media to not just be bashing Trump all the time, like sometimes is fine because he he does things that deserve to be bashed. But we also need to like give voters reason to be excited about Biden and like have voters understand what Biden's policies are and why they're better than Trump's. Um, and I don't think we see enough of that. Like, I, I don't know that just bashing Trump and, and scaring us into, you know, how horrible another four years of Trump will be is enough to really incentivize people to go out and vote for Biden if they don't really know what he stands for or what he's going to do to fix it. Um, you kind of have to go to his website and read through his policies if you want to be like informed on it. And I just feel like we should see more of like, you know, the news actually talking about Biden's policies. And today's final word will go to Noah. Okay. Um, so I think by any chance that maybe we'll start to have, I think we might start gaining trust back in our media, but I think besides gaining trust, we also need to 
reshape our media. I mean, like, obviously, I mean, like, obviously some media sites, I mean, like, no matter what side you're on, you, I feel like everybody should understand that there is a little bit of bias of what you are watching. So obviously, when I watch CNN, or I read something from the New York Times, I know it's a little bit more biased to my side, the left side. But I mean, like, I think by any chance we need to start going back to actually like having unbiased news. Like we shouldn't be asking for these people's political inputs or anything like that. We shouldn't have like these Tucker Carlson's that are like, here's what I believe and here's what everybody else should believe. We should actually be actually doing good old fashioned reporting and going back to the times where it's like when the news actually was not this 24 hours news cycle, but obviously that's not going to change. I think we just need to go back to like having like, a decent news source that actually can provide with unbiased beliefs. And so currently, like the only place I can find unbiased news is the AP at, to an extent. And so it's like anytime I'm trying to find like something that's not going to obviously be biased my way, I try to at least look at the AP or trying to find something on the other opposite side of my political spectrum. And so it's like, I think the best option is for us to just go back to not having bias, trying to become as least biased as possible and just not being known as the right wing or the left wing news media outlet. Okay. And with that, we will close for today, but we'll be back with another episode in our election 2020 series next week, by which time we should have a much better sense of where things stand. And with any luck, that will give us an opportunity to look more closely at well, who voted for which candidate and why and what the balance of power is likely to be in 2021 and what all this might mean in real people's lives over the next few years. So if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. You can just send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com or post a comment in the episode link we'll put up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we will do the best to answer that question, respond to whatever query you have. And if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you'd like a third full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions as well as other good stuff. And you can get the details and become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter but you'd like all that content, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you full access to everything we're putting out. We'd also appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday this week with all of our Politics Guys hosts for the first time ever. And then the next segment in this election 2020 series on Tuesday, November 10th. We hope you'll join us.